Hey, I want to get started on our study today. I did want to share that little personal tidbit. Um, we're going through the last book in the, within the Bible by way of order, the book called The Revelation of Jesus Christ. And revelation means unveiling. Today's title out of this is Listen to Obey. You know, Joshua was instructed when he was receiving his, his commission, if you would, his new season, this new step of faith he was going to be on, taken over from Moses, and he was told to observe to do. When we approach the Word of God, we need to have kind of a, a mindset, if you would, that, uh, you know, why am I doing this? And what am I? What am I hoping to receive from it? What am I? What am I kind of looking for? Not in a self-focused way, but you see, we want to listen to obey. We want to observe to do, not just to collect knowledge, but to usher in a form or a type, a God-directed transformation, which was what we we're really literally desiring. So, in this particular letter, we're in chapter two still. This book, Revelation. Hopefully you've noticed that the book begins with the declaration of the deity of Jesus Christ. See, this book is about Jesus Christ. Now, we do look into it sometimes, and we're curious to get past this first portion and to see some of the things that are coming and the pending judgment and the amazing things that have never happened on this planet before. And even we see a glimpse of this one who's referred to as the Antichrist. But always remind yourself... You're, you, this book and each book you're reading in Scripture is to get to know Jesus Christ. That's our goal. That's our drive. And that's really what the text teaches us. It reminds us that Jesus is God. We've already seen that from this first chapter. He's the great shepherd of the church, the eternal Savior who died for our sins and rules over heaven and earth. What we have, by by way of receiving this, you know, uh, Jesus speaks to his church through John concerning uh, encouragement, comfort, caution, and correction for every believer. Now, as we have looked at this first portion, and we'll be there today as well in chapter 2, when he says the church, you know, to the seven churches that are there in uh, Asia Minor, and he identifies them, you know, by location, there's... Four ways I want you to at least consider as we go through this, uh, a view and uh, a, to have a broader understanding and, a, and a, I believe a, a real-world application. So there was in this letter the geographical church. Those were the churches that were meeting in the locations identified. There was the, the church in Ephesus, in Smyrna, and Pergamos. And then there we'll see next week in Thyatira, in Sardis, in Philadelphia, Laodicea. Those were the geographic churches. And so we can glean a little bit from that because they were meeting. So the letter is to them. But we also know it, it also is a letter to the churches, plural, meaning all of all ages. So there's the geographical church. There's the historical church. And what some have done, and I think it's very accurate, you see it from history, is they, they, they look at this history, these 2,000 years since this was written and today, and they see how it speaks of ages, breaking up the last 2,000 years into segments or ages that correlate with the specific message to each one of the seven churches. And so as we've seen um, in Ephesus, 
You know, Ephesus you know, was the first church identified, and we looked at that last Sunday. Um, early on in the growth of Christianity, in the, in the gathering of the people after the resurrection of Jesus, early on, there started being forms and systems and programs, and it, it, it seen how it worked. And there was an excitement, and there was life. But what was happening, it was growing into more of just doing and not really realizing. That's why last week we looked at a key thing that Jesus said to the church in Ephesus. You guys are doing amazing. You are kicking it. You're you're on track. But I have this against you. You've left your first love. You've let it become a program. And so, you know, that early church was the loveless church. And that carried, most people see it to about 100 A.D. And then in 100 A.D., we have Smyrna. After that, from 100 to 300, around 310, was this church in Smyrna, which was the persecuted church. Because as the early church grew, the Roman Empire really didn't feel they had control like they liked control and could do what they wanted to do. And there was intense persecution. It's estimated that approximately 6 million Christians were martyred in that persecuted church era, which we correlate to Smyrna. And so then today we'll get into more details as we take a look at the church in Pergamos. So, I'm going over views and how you would see this, this, these seven churches. There's the geographical church. There's the historical church. And by application, we want to consider the present-day church, which means it's applying the content of these seven messages to current times. And you can see how the, you know, having that awareness with these three views helps us to kind of get more of the depth that's being spoken. And the last one is the personal church, or personal application, I call it receiving the encouragement and warnings as God's word to direct our lives today. Because there are, there are portions of each one of these letters that have application, sometimes in the very you know, time we're living in our personal walk, or in reflection, we can see when we're a little more loveless, or maybe we were going through intense trials, not quite to the level of persecution the early church experienced. You see what I'm saying? And today, we're going to consider the compromising church which I think we can all, if we let the Holy Spirit shine his light of truth, we can all glean a lot and learn from what we can pull out of today. So let's pray. God, thank you for your word. Thank you for your faithfulness. Thank you, God, that you know all things. You know the beginning and the end, the first and the last. You, God, know all things. And you, God, are faithful. Even when we, as your children, are faithless, you remain faithful, for you can't stop being yourself. You don't deny yourself. And I would ask, God, that you would walk us through your word today. I would pray, Holy Spirit, that you would prepare our hearts right now to receive whatever you desire, whatever you know we need. May we not have a restriction. May we not be in any way hindering or blocking what you want to bring to us. May we have the courage to follow you, the faith to believe in you, and the will to put you first, God. So Lord, we know that that takes a work of you to even prepare us to receive. And so we'll thank you for that as well. As you teach us your word today, that we may shine as light in this world, that we may allow your love to somehow radiate from us in such a fashion that others long for and hunger for what we have. In your beautiful name, Jesus. 
Amen. Amen. All right, quick review. Last Sunday, we received encouragement and instruction from what Jesus said to the church in Ephesus. I've already touched on it. He said to that church, I know you. I know your labor. I know your patience. I know your boldness in addressing the truth. I know your determined stand for Jesus, for me, he would say. But he says, you've left your first love. And then he gives instruction. Repent, turn back to loving Jesus. Use your spiritual ears to listen and respond. You know, remember he said that, he who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Well, that's what he's telling us. Listen, use this to respond. And then on Wednesday night, we went over the encouragement and comfort that comes from the um, church of Smyrna. Now, if you're, ha- if you're not able to catch both Sunday and Wednesday, or you have a time you, m- you miss, we do have these online. You just go to our f- the front page of our webpage, website, and you can just walk your way right through to um, this particular series to study. So Smyrna. In Smyrna, with the church that was facing intense persecution, he says, I know you're suffering and the persecution you endure. Do not fear. And I would add by application, do not quit. There's many that are right on that edge. Maybe just things, the waves of challenges and different issues, and even as Ashley was praying, these different things you're facing, they just seem to be almost knocking you over. You can't seem to be able to get up. But I want to say to you, do not quit. Where are you going to go anyway? You know what I mean? The, the disciples were ready to quit. Many turned back and walked with him no more. Jesus said to those that remained, what about you? What are you going to do? Where are we going to go? You have the words of eternal life. And there was that realization that even when things seem off and difficult and hard, I'm not quitting. I'm not going. I got no place else to go. To you and you only will I go. And so I want to encourage you because, you know, once again, as the church in Ephesus was told, and we see here in Smyrna, and we'll see it throughout this letter, Use your spiritual ears to respond, to hear and respond. He was an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Today, we're going to now roll over with that intro to verse 12 of chapter 2, and we're going to look at the church in Pergamos. Let's read it. Verse 12 of Revelation 2. And to the angel of the church of Pergamos, write, These things says he who has the sharp two-edged sword. I know your works. And where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, and you hold fast to my name and did not deny my faith, even in the days in which Antipas was my faithful martyr who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. Verse 14. But I have a few things against you because you have there those who hold the doctrine of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the children of Israel to eat things sacrificed to idols and to commit sexual immorality. Thus you also have those who hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which thing I hate. Repent, or else I will come to you quickly and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give some of the hidden manna to eat, and I will give him a white stone, and on the stone a new name written, which no one knows except him who receives it. All right, let's go back. Let me give you a little history, which helps on that side of of application and understanding and geography a little bit. The church at Pergamos. 
Pergamos is located 60 miles north of Smyrna, 20 miles inland. Um, Ephesus and Smyrna, the first two churches we looked at, were seaports and they were thriving you know, commerce centers that came with being a seaport. I say they were seaports in the sense that changing water levels, they're now, those geographic locations are probably 10 miles from the coast. But Pergamos is interesting because it's inland more, so it didn't have that natural commerce of a seaport. But what it did have and what they thrived on was religion and education. Actually, government religion and education. Pergamos had a... um, 200,000 volume library, second only to Alexandria at that time. Now think about 200,000 before the printing press. You know, someone's got writer's cramp. You know what I'm saying? That's a, that's a lot of volumes. And, and why would they have that? Well, well, they had it because it was an education center. They put a, a lot of focus upon learning. Little sidebar Mark Antony, the Roman leader, gave that library to Queen Cleopatra, the Egyptian queen he was infatuated with. So that's where it ended up after what we're reading about here. Pergamos provided Asia Minor with a gathering place for government, education, and religion. According to a historian by the name of Pliny, there was a Roman Supreme Court in Pergamos And the decrees that went out from the Caesars, which was their ruler, the decrees that went out from them, were sent out from Pergamos. Now, remember, the Roman government believed they held the right to life and death for everyone in the empire. They believed they held authority and truth. Which is interesting because if you notice how Jesus starts this letter, he identifies himself differently. He does this in each of the letters, at least some variation. But in this one, he says he's the two sharp, two-edged sword. I believe that gives us a glimpse to what his focus would be because he's saying he holds all truth. That imagery we have, as we see, you know, kind of stems a little bit, if you would, from what we read in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12. In Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12, we're told that the word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword piercing even to the division of soul and spirit and of joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and the intents of the heart. So here in Hebrews, we have this imagery of this, this, this sword able to pierce. It's the word of God. Now, John tells us in his gospel that Jesus is the word of God. He says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Continuing there in John chapter 1, he goes on to say, and the Word became flesh, and did what? Dwelt among us. So that's really, it's pretty obvious and easy to see, saying Jesus is this Word that we're reading about. And so, taking that imagery and considering Revelation chapter 1, verse 16, which we've already looked at, we see this speaking of Jesus having this sharp two-edged sword proceeding out of his mouth. It, it, you see what it's saying. It wasn't physically present in a sense. It's just conveying he is the one who, who brings this truth. Because what we have happening in Pergamos is actually repeated in each generation to some degree in some measure in some location. And what it is, the church in Pergamos is a compromising church. 
mixing cultural beliefs and demonic doctrine into the life of the church. Jesus, as the word of God, will cut through all compromise and deception and division and pride and every thought and intent will be laid wide open and bare before him to whom we must give an account. And so here, as we see this starting out and he presents this, we want to realize the word of God, as we read it, as we are aware of it, as God illuminates it and gives us discernment and understanding, is really, really essential to the life we've been given. There's four things that I'd like you to consider that the word of God brings. And and I try to keep these four things in in the front of my mind, if you would, when I sit down to read I believe you probably have the same dynamic at times. When you sit down to read, and you start reading, and you continue reading, and somewhere between the process of visually reading and internally comprehending, a wire unplugs. And you just keep reading and reading. And so I have a discipline I've brought into my life. One is when I get to that point, I have to stop and go back to the last place that wire was plugged in. The last point of comprehension. I've went back a whole chapter before. I've read a whole chapter just like by, by visual practice. And I go back and I say, wait a minute, I'm, I'm, I'm reading this for a purpose. I want to get something out of it. So one thing that's helped is I want to always realize the word of God brings comfort, conviction, correction, and direction. And if you have that and it can, it can keep that kind of resident when you sit down, then I believe we're more receptive. And even as we process and get kind of into it, so to speak, can there be a, an illumination on our heart, a, a, a grasp in our comprehension, or a clarity in our comprehension to where we're comforted? You know, when you're going through a tough time or even a good time, when you sit down as a child of God, born again, born of the Spirit, forgiven of your sins by the work of Jesus Christ, you are a new creation in Christ, and you sit down to read, no matter what you're going through, there's comfort, Agreed? And it might not be related just to your scheduled reading. It may be just where a word comes and you're comforted by the word. But also, as we're comforted, as we, we are reading, there's also times where we're convicted. We realize, ooh, man, I didn't even see that in my life. I didn't even realize that was a part of my practice. It wasn't even, I didn't, oh, wow. And with conviction, we realize, okay, what am I going to do with that? Because conviction it needs to have not only correction, but direction. Think of conviction this way. You do something you shouldn't do. You knew you shouldn't do it, and you're convicted. Now, how's your response? See, the conviction is is not the main thing. The, The realization, okay, that wasn't right. The Bible tells us that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. In essence, those who are walking with him condemnation is when there's a stirring and realization of wrongdoing or wrong attitude or wrong mindset. Like, man, I knew better. I did it anyway. That's the truth. Condemnation says, you, I, I got I to gotta get away from God. I got to go this way. I can't go to church anymore. I got to get my act together. I got to clean my act up. I got to get this right. And we pull back from God. That's condemnation. Conviction is realizing the same truth. I knew better, I did it anyway, I know that's not right. Man, I need more of God. Do you see the difference? So the word of God brings conviction and causes us to long for more because when conviction is realized, there's another thing that takes place, correction. 
We start realizing, man, okay, God, ah. And then we, we sense the, the, the right and wrong dynamic as he reveals these truths. And we're like, oh. But correction needs an action as well. Correction needs direction. And so God always leads us and guides us and walks us through these difficult things. Sometimes, you know, the, sometimes the most dangerous thing is the small thing. See, we know not to murder someone, but we can cuss them out on occasion. We know not to do this, but we do this because it's small. It's not quiet. And there's other people doing it too. But guess what? When the word of God convicts you and corrects you, it will always direct you, give us a direction. So now we're going to go back to Revelation 2.13. I, I, want, I mentioned that because, as I've said, this, this first chapter, this book is about Jesus and how he works and leads and, and, and literally is Lord of our lives. And we see his direction. We've got to respond to it. We've got to recognize it. In Revelation chapter 2, now it moves to verse 13 as, we're, as we study. And he says, I know your works and where you dwell. Where Satan's throne is, and, and you hold fast to my name and do not deny my faith, even in the days which Antipas, my faithful martyr, who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. As I've mentioned, in the ages of the church, around 310 AD, the Christian church was presented as the official religion of Rome. Constantine uh, made Christianity the recognized religion of Rome. I don't put too much study into Constantine myself. Um, I think he did it for political maneuvers, but that's another study in and of itself. But that time, when that was, how that was around that time it was taking place, it ended the age of persecution, which we'd seen in Church of Smyrna represented. This was a time when the pagan practices of other religions were brought into the church, leading to much compromise. Because so you can see realistically what's happening. There's this global, this, you know, empire shift and now what used to be illegal christianity is now promoted as the premier it's the one and anybody who was practicing those other pagan religions has got a problem because previously christians were put to death but now those who participate in that type of anger and hatred are now shifting and putting others on the persecution block so what happened in many of these pagan religions the leaders or people within it just became Christian or became part of the, the, the church there in Pergamos in different places. See, it wasn't, I didn't say conversion because I don't know that that happened for, for sure, but I know this was taking place. They were coming in in history. If you, if you study some of the practices even of the church, many of the practices that are more compromising, they're more in a function idolatrous, they're more ritualistic, they come from some of these pagan religions. And that though, so what was happening is this much compromise is coming into the church. And so you have this challenge because as a gathering of people who love Jesus and now there's influx and all this tech coming from the world into the church, Jesus says, I know. And I hope that resonates in a very personal way to you and a very practical way in the world you live in. I know what's going on. Jesus can say clearly, I know the shift of culture. I know the overreach of government, and I know the thoughts and the intents of the heart. He knows the motive and what moves people and why, more than I know why I move and go and be, he knows all of that. And so it should be hopefully comforting. It was, I believe, comforting to them. 
Because when he says that, it's not just to them, it's to you and I. It said in each of the letters to the seven churches, the complete church, it said to the church in every age, it said to to the believer at every age, I know, I know. And I hope you can at least let that resonate and cycle through and become a real important part of your reality with Jesus. I know. I know you're hurt. I know your hardship. I know what you're going through. I, I'm fully aware. I know your works. I know your cultural challenges. I know your steadfast defense of me. I know your faith and your endurance. One of the people in the church was even killed because of their faith in Jesus. And he says, I know. I know what's going on. You know, I think because we see so much evil and so much sinister actions and terrible things taking place, we can't escape this common carnal thought. Does God even know? Has anybody wondered? I mean, is that kind of passed through even though you didn't ask for it? It just kind of shoots through. Does, does God even hear my prayers? Does he even know? Does he even know? Yes. And the only way you can know that is because he made it known to you. I can feel like he knows. I can, in my mind, say he knows. But I look to the word and it's confirmed. He says, I know. Throughout the word of God, he says, I know. I'm very much aware. And so then that causes us hopefully to not be so, maybe in a natural sense, we're kind of reacting because we want some therapy or some relief. But we're actually reacting with the realization, okay, God, I know you know. And therefore, I, I give me the faith to trust you even more because you know what I'm going through. You know what's been going on. You know what's been happening. It says where Satan dwells. So they're going through this where they're, just, they're living this out in a place where the enemy is near. Pergamos was the perfect place for deception, for pride, for inflated egos and social distractions. It says where Satan dwells. I ask for your patience when I present this next principle, this truth. I uh, have taken a hit for this one over the years, but so be it. Satan's domain is where education and politics unite. We sometimes think his domain would be in that sexually immoral place, in that violent place, in that place that's so degraded, and so obvious, it's horrible, it's an evil place. But I would suggest, even looking at Pergamos in more depth, in depth in history, Satan's domain is where education and politics unite. This is the part that's some see controversial, and I have to preface it with this. I am all for higher learning. I really am. I wouldn't be up here, I wouldn't devote my life to teaching and to teaching the word of God if I wasn't totally committed to higher learning. I'm not committed to the concept of academia. I'm not committed to some of these principles, and here's some of the reasons. Currently, most every college and university denies the presence and the work of the living God. Let me say it again. Most every college and university denies the presence and the work of the living God. Many, quote, Ivy League, many respected colleges and universities deny the presence and the the practical living God. And that's not my, that's not an opinion, okay? That's something you you can do your own study. 
And we find, we've, had, we've had an odd shift in the church where there's this, this need for some form of accreditation on our education, and the accreditation is based from people who say that Jesus isn't God. You know, all these things, it's, it's really a quandary. It's a confusing time, quite honestly. I'm not a critic of higher education. I'm all for higher learning. But I have to be an observer, too. And I look and say, this is what we're, you know, this is, you know, we, we, our kids were able to go to Bible college. Now, Bible college doesn't mean they're going to get their life together and live happily ever after. It means an opportunity for them to, to receive and to study and to know the word of God and the person of Jesus Christ in a different level. And I would suggest, because my kids were there, I thought, hey, you, know, you ought to consider like this. And they're like, oh, we're not, no, I don't want Bible college. I'm like, okay, this is some people I know and love still. It's not accredited. It, it's not accredited? I mean, it's, it, and I know I'm saying something to some of you are going, did he just say that? Yeah, I did. It's not accredited, but to, by who? By who? Why have we allowed the teachings of this world to be of higher importance than the very doctrines of the gospel? It, it doesn't make sense. Now, I know I'm maybe making some things confusing for you that have 18 to 19-year-olds and you're trying to work things out, but please just weigh this out because it's it's just an observable reality. The enemy knows some things really well. Deceive them as young adults and they'll be tilted most of their lives. It's part of the reason we put an emphasis upon teaching the word of God in an environment that the kids can learn. Because we want those younger kids to understand the truths of God and the junior high and the high school. We're told in Ephesians chapter 6 that we're to be aware of the schemes, um, the wiles, it's, uh, the strategies of the devil. We're to know what he does. And he, he starts early and tries to get people off course. Now, I mentioned two things. Satan's domain is where education and politics unite. Every university, college denies the presence and work of the living God, every political party, either by policy or practice, denies the presence and place of the living God. Every political party. And the tears of the Republicans are starting to run, and the tears of the left are, you know, they're the Democrats, they're starting to drip. But let's face it, if you look, if you observe it, you're going to have to say, hmm, that doesn't line up with the gospel of Jesus Christ. What they say and what they do are inconsistent. You see what I'm saying? Because Satan loves that. If he were to live somewhere, it would be where education and politics coincide and the church is divided. And that's what we have here. We have the church divided. Maybe you caught it when he mentioned it. Um, he says in verse 14, I have a few things against you because you have there those who hold the doctrine of Balaam. He didn't say your leadership teaches this, but you have interspersed and intermingled within your gathering, within what's referred to as your group, your church, those who are contrary. Now, there's no problem having differences on non-essential doctrines. We should have variants. We should have differences. We should be able to see from a broader view. But on the essentials, you've got to be in, in unity, we're to strive or to endeavor, endeavor to keep the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. So we, we realize that, but we also want to know Satan's means are to bring in 
compromise, to bring in culture, to bring in acceptance at the expense of the word of God. Let's check it out in verse 14. In verse 14, he goes on to say, there are those who hold the doctrine of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the children of Israel. So there's three things you can see that, that reveal what this doctrine was. There was a stumbling block. There was the, the eating things sacrificed to idols or idolatry, and then sexual immorality. For your own homework, you can go to the Old Testament book of Numbers, and when you get there, you can go to chapter 22, read chapters 22 to 25, as well as chapter 31, and when you read those, you're going to get an insight on what's going on. There's a prophet by the name of Balaam. He's hired by God's enemies to put a curse on Israel. Instead, God spoke through Balaam a blessing on Israel rather than a curse. Balaam, realizing he's being paid to bring curses, so he teaches the Moabites, Balak, basically a way to hurt Israel. He schemes to have Israel's young men intermarry with the Moabite women. These marriages, we know from Scripture, were forbidden by God in part because it would bring the idolatrous beliefs, religions, into the Israelite families. Uh, One guy did this, a well-known guy, pretty smart guy, really, really smart guy. You know a guy by the name of Solomon? You you remember reading what some of Solomon's demise was, his downfall? Multiple marriages and concubines. And it wasn't just a sexual thing. It It was a doctrinal thing. It was a national thing. It was a political thing that he brought in to bring alliance and allegiance and give in to his own desires. But God said, don't do that. Because when your men marry these other cultures, women from the other cultures, they're going to bring in what? Their history, their life story. And, and that will, in effect, take the Israelites off course. And we know what happened. We know what happened. You know it. I mean, how many of us would want to admit, probably not right now, but when we got saved, we brought carnality into the church because that's all we knew. We, we, we were okay with things because it didn't seem to be as bad as other things. I brought in certain doctrines that I am adamantly against right now because as a young Christian, I thought it was okay. And then thankfully, someone was kind enough and bold enough and loving enough to say, could I talk to you a little bit about what you just said? Because the Bible actually teaches this. Well, I know people that do it. Like, well, I'm not asking you about your relational connections. I just want to talk to you about what the Bible says. And they would walk me through the truth. And I go, oh. So you see what happens. But even more so when it's in direct rebellion, which is what was taking place. Balaam worked it out to bring in idolatry, sexual immorality, and false religion, which is exactly what continues to even today. It's a tactic and a scheme of the enemy. He brings these things in, and then because we have relational connections, we sometimes set aside the biblical principles for the favor of the relational connections. Verse 15, he goes on to say, in holding him accountable and showing his love, he brings correction, and he says, thus you also have those who hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which thing I hate. It's interesting when Jesus, Jesus, it's in red in your Bible, hopefully, he says, this is what I hate this. He doesn't hate the people. He doesn't hate those who practice it. He hates that they're, they're presenting it and promoting it. 
He loves him enough to say, you're one of them. He loves him enough to bring comfort from his word, to bring conviction, correction, and direction. But he's saying, I don't like this. And we, the, 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 those who study the Bible and Bible scholars are they're not torn, but they see two different things or two, two different uh, expressions or maybe even uh, definitions of this. The Nicolaitans, as we've seen when we were going through verse 6 of, of the study, it speaks to Nico and a laity. Um, so Nico is, is speaking of above, and laity means the kind of the common man, if you would. And, and literally what it means with those two together means to, to conquer the people. And Jesus hates that. He hates this hierarchy, this sense of religious establishment, so that if you want to be forgiven or you want to have a close relationship with God, you've got to give to this man, and this man will intercede for you, and he will play the part, and then you'll come back and tell you what else you've got to do. And Jesus, he said basically, quite honestly, I'm removing all that because I fulfilled the law. No longer do you need a high priest to intercede for you, a mediator to come between you and your maker. Jesus says, I am your mediator. I am your high priest. No longer will you need to go through another man. And so he, he didn't eliminate the law because it didn't work. He fulfilled it because it had a purpose. It was to show us and teach us we can't perform, we can't do it on our own. So if Nicolaitans, that practice was to take this system and promote it and put a man on top and say you've got to go through this person this pope this situation this system then he said i hate that now sometimes suggested and it fits because they're very similar that the nicolaitans refer to the followers of an of a deceiver named nicolas a proselyte of antioch and he brought in hierarchy and impurity into the church his followers leaned Strongly to uh, Gnosticism, you know, Gnosis, the Gnostic doctrine or heresy. Uh, Gnosis speaks of knowledge, of learning. And so the Gnostic core thought was that your body doesn't matter because you're going to depart from it anyway, it's going to die. And so whatever you do in the body is no big deal. You can live however because really God's more concerned with your soul, spirit, with that part of you, which was a complete you know, blasphemy according to what we see in the Bible itself. Well, the Nicolaitans brought that mindset and so you could be very, you know, all over the place in how you lived. Think of it this way. Hierarchy always is tainted with moral and ethical impurities. Always. We see it even today. When men elevate them, this is not just in the church, this is in many places, when, when people are elevated to hierarchy, to others are under their, they're in submission or subjection to them in the wrong way. These up on top always start making excuses for themselves, always have exemptions. And with the power, and absolute power, and absolute power corrupts absolutely. So we see this. It's tainted with moral and ethical impurities. Either way, Jesus hates these practices. That's what he says, I hate that. Moving on, considering as what I've mentioned, the word of God. It brings comfort, conviction, correction, direction. And we see in verse 16, repent or else I will come to you quickly and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Repent. To turn with regret. Regret that I've been living a certain way. I had a certain opinion. I had a certain doctrine. I had a certain practice. I, I, I was this way. And I realize now from the word of God that I was wrong, that that's not the way to live. 
And so I regret doing that, and I turn, I turn to him. That really is what he's speaking of. So do you see? As we are convicted personally, as there's a, a stirring individually, we, we, it says to repent. He says, I'll come to them. In other words, there were some that were on track and getting it, and there was others that were off track, and he's saying, come back around. If Jesus reveals something, is he correct? This is where we all say, yeah. Because <laughs> in other words, it, 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 well, maybe he didn't understand me. Yeah, he knows. I know, he said, I know, I know. He's told us time and again, I know what you're going through. And he doesn't say it in a condemning way, but in a way that would draw us to him. If he convicts you of a belief or a practice or an opinion, is he correct? Are we so bold, which I believe we are at times, that we would debate with him in order to have some form of a discussion so so by some means we could persuade him to understand our enlightened position? Well, I don't don't have to give because of this, and I don't have to participate because of that, and I I don't do this because of that. Well, you know what he says to you? Repent. Turn around. He's correct. The question comes, and you can't answer it here, It's not an audible sense. It's a deep reality, a conviction in your walk with Jesus when we realize, okay, will I receive correction? Because sadly, many won't. They would say it right now, yes. But they they don't always, we don't always receive correction. I know of many times in my life I would not receive correction. And you know what? When I embrace wrong now, I will stop listening to God's correction. You entrench yourself, you settle yourself, you put yourself, I put myself in such a place that I'm just holding, I'm gonna keep doing it because I've got away with it so far. And you'll stop listening to his correction. That comes back to the second part, which was actually the first part, but we'll call it the third part. Do you believe what we've already read? I know. Do we believe that he knows. Do I believe that he knows what I promote, what I present, what I personally embrace? I actually believe he does. I believe he does that for me, for you, for every single believer, every even non-believer he knows as well. So if we believe he knows, then I want, I should say, I want to repent. I, I don't want to keep going down this road. You know, realize this, Jesus is basically saying in this text, Repent, or I will prove you wrong and expose your wrongdoings. I will prove you wrong. He's going to take this sword, this word of truth that gets cuts through the thoughts and the intents of the heart, and he'll prove you wrong and your wrongdoings. Not to put you down, but to deal with something you will not deal with. Here's a case study you can take on. David. David did some horrible things, some terrible things. And he pretended like nobody knew in Second Samuel chapter 11 and chapter 12. It wasn't until Nathan the prophet came that David bowed his knees and repented before God. What he wouldn't deal with privately, God dealt with publicly. And I always, wonder, I always kind of remind myself of that reality. Because he loves us so much, he's not going to ignore. When he's saying, this, and you, this is not right and you know it, let's go this way. Just say it this way. God, give me the courage and the faith to trust you and go one step at a time, day by day, in this direction you'd have me to go. May I listen to obey. Or maybe you want to think of it as observed to do. Closing out with these thoughts. 
because it says, you know, he'll, he, has, he who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give some of the hidden manna to eat. And I will give him this white stone, and on the stone a new name written, which no one knows except him who receives it. Obedience brings nourishment. Manna that was not seen while we're disobedient will be experienced through obedience. Does that make sense? When you're disobedient, you, you, you know, Jesus said of himself, I am the bread of life. Okay? So he is that nourishment. But when we say I'm not doing it your way, we're kind of, kind of cutting off. You know what I'm saying? And, and we're, we're hungry. And we're like, oh, I'm not kidding. This hidden man I believe he's speaking of, or at least alluding to, is that which the nourishment that comes through obedience. When we let him be our Lord, when we receive him as our God and, and follow him in his strength. Think of it this way. When the word of God, exposing the will of God, revealing the ways of God for the glory of God is taking place, you're nourished in obedience. Nourished in obedience. I'll say that again. When the word of God, exposing the will of God, revealing the ways of God for the glory of God is taking place, you're nourished in obedience. And I think most of us, if we've been, you've been walking with Jesus for very long, you know exactly what I'm talking about. When there's that sense of like satisfaction and you've tasted and seen that the Lord is good, you're like, oh. And then you notice like, man, why did I go through so, why did I carry this so long? Why did I stunt my growth for so many seasons because I held on to that thought, that concept, which I know from the start I shouldn't be doing it. Oh, Lord, help me to stay focused, move forward. Notice this says a white stone. Historically, there has been a practice to determine an issue on a difficult decision or an issue, whatever needed to be, or to bring resolution so as to not show favoritism or not show any sense of you know, system. You were given the option, if you would, if you were a voting member, so to speak, that you could, on the issue concerning a person, you could put in a white stone or a black stone. The white stone was approval. The black stone was disapproval. It carried for, forward in the early parts of our country as well, very early, that you, you heard the term blackballed? <laughs> this is the roots to it. Because you, if everybody put in a black stone or a black ball, you were, you were rejected, it disapproved, no, then that person would be blackballed. Maybe you've heard of the blacklist. or be, You guys, you've heard it. So let's, let's break this down just real quickly. The white stone was given to the victorious soldier upon return. The white stone was given to the slave who had been set free. The white stone was given to the one who had been acquitted of charges. Christian, you know your Bible. Jesus has paid your price. You've been acquitted of the charges. Jesus is the one who has set you free from sin. You're no longer a slave to it. And I hope you're a Christian who longs to hear what Paul said. And may that be in your life too. I have fought the fight. I have finished the race. I've kept the faith. See, Paul was a soldier who finished well and received this white stone. You see what is being said? I think it's important to you and I. But what's interesting is not the stone itself, the real value, not the intrinsic value of the stone, but the inscription upon the stone. Did you notice it? Your new name that only Jesus knows. This speaks of intimacy and closeness 
and longevity. Think of it this way. You know people real close to you by very personal names. Men and women have, you know, like a husband and wife, they have names for each other that they don't speak publicly. My mom had a name for me that you don't get to know. Because I know you, you'd probably try to use it. And I, it's, it's only between me and mom that that had, had a, you see what I'm saying? So get this. When you realize that, that's what Jesus is saying. I have a name for you. I, I know you in a way you don't even know you. You've been acquitted. I've taken care of these things. I will equip you to, to be the, the soldier in faith that you're called to be in these last days. What an amazing thing. Second Peter chapter three. I know you wanted to go to one more verse. You've been keeping track. Second Peter chapter three. I have the worship team come up and uh, they're gonna close and lead us in worship as I read this passage and then we'll carry right into um, a time of prayer and then worship by way of music to close out our time. But we see in Second Peter chapter three, as we see there in verse 10, I believe this capsulizes where our study is. I believe it encourages us in the day we live in and hopefully has our eyes opened to what the Lord has. In verse 10, but as the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in which the heavens will pass away with a great noise and the elements will melt with fervent heat, both the earth and the works that are in it will be burned up. Therefore, since all these things will be dissolved, what manner of persons ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness, looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be dissolved, being on fire, and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Nevertheless, we, according to his promise, look for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Will you stand with me? Let's pray. God, thank you for your word today. Thank you for your grace, that unmerited favor that you brought to us, grace that brought us to the realization of your truth, that we need you. Thank you, God, for the born-again experience, not just an experience, the regeneration, the new life that's in it. And I pray, Lord, that we would put our faith in you in a greater way, that we would be aware of your love and presence and forgiveness and kindness and compassion, that we would not only know it, but we would allow it to be seen in our lives as we would allow you to shine through us. God, thank you so much. We know that you have told us of the days we live in and the days to come. And so therefore, God, may we think through what manner of people we ought to be, not because we have to do something for you, but because we begin more and more to know you, to know you, Jesus. We sing to you and praise you for all that you are and all that you've done. Amen.